listening to the Schaefer Shankdown. You know those signs people um, have been posting on the doors of like a restaurant or a coffee shop like, we are closed because no one wants to work anymore. Or a less aggressive version, like, please be patient while we are understaffed. I feel like that's me right now over here at the Schaefer Shakedown. Like, I need to put up a sign. Like, please be patient. Nobody here wants to work. Every employee here at the Schaefer Shakedown has been overcome with malaise. They're tired of the low wages, and quite frankly, they've had it with the utter disrespect from management. Always telling them they're not good enough. Always asking stuff like, why can't you be as good or successful as those other people? Hmm? Always pounding into their heads, your work is your value and your value is your work. Always demanding more success, more followers, more hours, more money, more, 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 more. And then those same employees, they look at the news and the social media and they just see nothing but insanity. And they just want to give up, you know? They want to say, fuck this. What I'm trying to say is, I'm sorry I haven't recorded an episode in a while. It is uh, what they call the the dog days of summer. Or am I being dogged by this goddamn pandemic that won't seem to end? Don't worry. As you can see, I am not giving up on this podcast. I have given up on projects many times before. But the pandemic, it's not going to stop me, okay? But also, the pandemic, it's jarred something in my brain. That little narrative that I had built about work and career, it's just been jostled a bit, you know? It's been roughed up. There's some cracks in the foundation now. You know, the whole thing is still standing right now, but it feels really precarious. Just a little breeze comes on by and the whole thing might come crashing down. I did a show in uh, Orchid, California this past week in Orchid, California. It's like the central coast. Um, it was my first road gig since before the pandemic and it was a lovely show. Nice people, sold out crowd, if I do say so myself. Uh, my friend Crystal Adams opened for me. And we drove up together and had an overnight trip. Um, and we talked and talked and talked and laughed so much. It was just really, really good to spend time with her and with a friend like that. Um, but, you know, this was on the tail end of feeling like I really have had very little alone time for the past two months. Um, been traveling to see family a lot. Been getting back into the world with performing doing some light socializing. Um, obviously, with the Delta variant, seems like that might all be sort of putting the brakes on all that. But for these past two months, it was like, go, 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 people, people, people. Um, and I came back from it all, and I've just been exhausted. Um, so maybe it's catching up with me. This past week, I, you know, kind of went a little inward. And in there, you know, inside my head right now, there is just a hurricane of bad thoughts. It's just just wild in there right now. And uh, I felt like it was kind of getting harder to break out of that in the presence of other people. Like, I would feel like people were talking to me. And I, I think I was just staring into the distance sometimes. 
and it was just hard to kind of be my full self, um, even around my immediate, um, you know, household members. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been in a rut. Ain't no shame in it. Um, and I have been doing my things that I do to keep myself afloat in these trying times, you know, um, maintaining my little ecosystems, my worm bin, my compost, my plants. Things in the garden are getting kind of scraggly in the heat of summer. We're having some failures, but, you know, I have harvested some delicious peppers and tomatoes. Travel is hard because, you know, we're thankfully I have Jordan here. She, she'll water the garden while I'm gone. I'll water the rest of the property which is normally her duty um, while she's gone. But, you know, when, when a plant starts to wilt or look like it's struggling, it's if you're not here, I said, I've said this before just in general about gardening. If you're not here, um, if you're the overseer of a garden and you're not here for even a week, if something goes awry, you have no way of knowing why. Um, you, you don't know you know, you trust, Jordan knows what she's doing. So it's not like, and she did exactly what I told her to do. But if something is like wilted, when you come back, like you don't know, was it too hot? Is it too much water? Is it not enough water? Was it, should I put shade over it? Like, you know, so you kind of lose your observation, um, which observation I'm learning in gardening is one of the greatest uh, assets you have is observing your plants um, and learning as you go. So, you know, anyway, I also made some aerated compost tea, which was really fun. Now, first off, I know what you're thinking. No, do not drink. Drink it. You don't drink it. Um, when I tell people about compost tea, they assume it's something that I'm imbibing. And I'm like, oh, Sarah's very far gone into this gardening stuff. She's one of these hippies. You know, she's drinking something called compost tea. She's clearing her body of toxins with it, probably. No, no. You do not drink compost tea. Your plants drink it, okay? Um, so the idea is that you, your compost that you're making, whether it's um, from your worm bin or it's a regular compost bin, um, you can put it to better use by making uh, brewing a liquid tea from it, and that way you can pour it onto the garden and get down to the roots uh, more effectively. Um now, you can greatly increase the amount of organisms in your compost tea by doing something called aerating it. Um, here's how it works. So I bought an air pump, like the kind people use with aquariums. <laughs> and then I took some little hoses, attached it to this bubbler thing that I bought, and you submerge that in a five-gallon bucket of filtered water. You don't want your regular tap water because that has chlorine in it, which can reduce the activity, the, um, the life uh, um, in the water, you, you put four to five cups of compost into a, a tea bag. Now it depends on the size of the tea bag. And, but this is a, a, a tea bag that I bought specifically meant for compost tea. Um, you sp suspend that in the water and then you add some molasses to the water. Now molasses becomes food for the microbes. And the reason you bubble the water is that it keeps oxygen in the water and keeps it agitated. And I guess that is when the good bacteria will flourish you don't want an anaerobic bacteria. Remember biology class, aerobic versus anaerobic. Aerobic is with oxygen. That's all I remember. Um, you don't want anaerobic bacteria forming in the water. That's bad bacteria. 
for your garden. So I get it all set up and it and, and really now I'm just feels like I'm a witch, you know, it's like bubble bubble toil and trouble and I'm like pouring a thick back black goo into it, laughing maniacally at the moon. <laughs> Hey, you let that bubble, bubble, toil and trouble for 24 to 48 hours. And then when it's done, you take, you know, you dip in a, I, I dip in a little uh, saucer type thing or uh, like a a measuring cup that has a little spout, pour spout. Um, I dip it in and I pour uh, one to two cups of liquid around the base of each plant. And then I take those, those compost grounds, you guess your, your tea grounds is what you would call them. And then I spread them out in the garden as well. And it's such a satisfying experience because it's organic, it's gentle, won't burn your plants, and it's made from your own hands. Kitchen scraps have now, you know, your it's a circle of life situation. So love it. Um, and I just, the compost bin, you know, I've been doing it for nine months now. It's my first time ever really having a successful compost bin. And it's just insane to think about how much kitchen waste I've put in this thing and leaves and shredded paper just bins and bins and bins of it. And it's not overflowing. It's like barely half full because it just keeps breaking down and breaking down like whole heads of lettuce that had like gone bad. Shame on me, but at least I can now compost it, throw it in there. It's completely gone. It's missing. You know, it's so cool. Um, And I got to sift my compost. Now, one of the big mysteries of me with composting was always like, okay, if you if you're doing a system where you have a bin that you're continually adding to, how do you get the finished compost out? How do you separate the unfinished from the finished? Now, some people say you, you'll open up a little door or hatch at the bottom and you that's where the good stuff is. You pour it out because it's at the bottom. But I'm always turning my pile and, and mixing it. So I was like, how do I separate? Well, I just tried it. And I dug down in and I grabbed the black stuff, the, the stuff that didn't look like anything, and that like food or scraps or anything. And I I, I took out a few handfuls and then I sifted it by like rubbing handfuls of it over like a little makeshift sifter that I did. I just took a piece of hardware cloth, almost like wire mesh, um, chicken wire almost. Um, and, and I placed it over a bucket and I'm rubbing it so that all those smaller pieces fall through and the bigger unfinished stuff wouldn't get through. Now you don't have to overthink what's finished and what's not, because if it's black and doesn't look like anything and it looks just like dirt, it's broken it down enough for you to use in the garden, okay? So that was great. And I also just finished reading that book. Um, I've mentioned it before. It's called Dirt to Soil. And I think I'm going to get the soil just from this book reading. And I've thought about it before, but this really drove the point home. I'm going to get my soil tested um, so I can really know what I'm dealing with. Um, I, I you send it off to a lab and they give you an analysis so you can like know what nutrients might be lacking in your soil. Um, and Dirt and Soil, the book, recommended something called the Haney test, which I like because it kind of sounds like Heine. And I love that term. I love when people call a butt a Heine. Get your Heine in here. Look at the Heine on that guy. <laughs> anyway, the Haney test measures overall soil health and microbial biomass. The Heine test measures the overall health of dead ass and how dumb thick it is. Uh, so make sure you... You um, know the difference. Um, this kind of thing, it, you know, it just, it does. It keeps me from descending into total darkness. And even if I'm only doing a little bit of gardening each day, um, you know, then the rest of the day, I might still be completely useless. But it does help. And uh, yesterday, I was feeling actually really low. 
And I just kept telling myself that these feelings pass and um, you will feel better. You'll get your mojo back, even if it's just for a short while. And that's what happened. I'll tell you about it. So so I, I, it starts with something, you know, just a thought popping in my head or maybe something triggers it. I see something on social media or somebody says something in my life that triggers a question or a stress about my career. Okay. And it'll be like, well, why hasn't this happened for me? And, or that happened? And how come I ended up like this and not like that? And when is the next job going to come? And, and what if it's over? What if my career is over? You know, it just gets, it balloons very quickly. Um, and it's fun, you know? (laughs) And then I try to calm myself down. I'm like, you know, come on, let's hold up now here. Um, I remind myself how lucky I've been, how much I've achieved, how many dreams of mine have come true, that I'm okay, how my teen self would be blown away by this life that I've built, you know? I've met Lisa Loeb, teen Sarah. I was on MTV, teen Sarah. I won an Emmy, teen Sarah. Oh my God, teen Sarah, get a load of this Los Angeles weather. Um, but then a little other goblin voice comes in, creeping in with the other side, and it's like, nice try, adult Sarah. You're just making excuses for your failures. You should be doing better in your career than you are. Oh, all those things teen Sarah would be impressed by, well, they happened 10 years ago. What, what have you done lately, hmm? You've basically made the wrong choices every single day since, you idiot. You didn't play the game right. You didn't hang out enough. You're not tough enough. You aren't sexy enough. And now it's too late because you're getting too old. (laughs) Well, then I go, hey, you, no, you shut up. That's not right. That's not the story. I've worked my ass off and I'm proud of my work. And I've done so many cool things since those days of MTV and winning Emmys and all that stuff. I'm good at this shit. I put in the work. I've had some really bad luck. That's true. And yes, I've had, I have made choices that didn't pan out the way I wanted them to. But at every turn, I made the best choice for me with the information I had at the time. It's easy to, hindsight is twenty i I've sacrificed certain career things in favor of my relationships, in favor of what I thought was the right thing to do for society at large, in favor of my own peace of mind, my own mental health. And I take responsibility for those decisions, knowing that maybe, maybe they held me back at moments when it comes to career stuff. And I have to live with that and can't complain now, you know, and, and those, be- those choices benefited me in other ways in my life. It's not just about my career. I don't know if it was the pandemic or what, but I, I also have just come to realize that so much of this is completely out of my control. And beating myself up for this choice or that choice and just microanalyzing every little step I've taken is just useless. And it is absolutely ludicrous to compare myself to others. I've realized, I've realized that when you compare yourself to others, 
first off, comparing myself to others is probably my number one unhealthy habit. It's like an addiction. And it has been the fight of a fucking lifetime to stop doing it. And sometimes it feels nearly impossible. Now, I'm not saying that I do it nonstop all day long and that I don't have a handle on it most days. You know, I've been working in therapy for the better part of six years to deal with all of this. Um, And, you know, one day to the next, it could be a different person I'm comparing myself to. I usually have like a top five. Everybody has their person that they're looking at like, I'm fucking better than that person. Why do they, you know, everybody has that. Some people may not, but the people who do this have that. If if you're like this, you understand. Um, But, you know, some days or weeks I'm in a little depressive rut, like the one I'm in right now. And it feels like I'm being swarmed by these thought patterns. All the practice I've done to try and undo that way of thinking is really much harder to put into practice. And I'm just overwhelmed. And it's it's pointless. I know it's pointless when I'm in it. First off, every time you start to compare yourself to someone who is loads more successful than you are, you're acting like they started at the same spot as you. That the race began at point A and you both took off running and the other person is now winning by a mile. Well, of course you feel like shit. (laughs) But that's not reality. You both started at different points because you're different people. And then you dig a little and you find out, oh, oh, they went to an Ivy League private school. Oh, they had rich parents. Or maybe it's not even wealth. Maybe they just simply lived at home until they were in their 30s, and they literally didn't pay rent or any bills for over a decade. It was geography for them. They were able to pursue their dream geographically from their parents' home. You know, uh, they didn't have to have a day job. You know, think about all the time that gives you, the head start you get, the sheer amount of hours that you are given just to practice the thing. Um... You know, or maybe maybe it's not it's not just that kind of stuff. It's also maybe they're just related to someone famous and the access that gave them. Or they're, you know, not just related, they're best friends with or they went to college with, you know, all those things. And now as I get older, I'm beginning to understand the power of nepotism in Hollywood. You know, one of the biggest questions I get from younger comedians and writers is like, but how do I find out which shows are hiring? That seems like such a mystery. And it is, even to me to this day, why are we in a business where um, you don't even know about the job openings? You know, that's like information that's kept, kept secret. It's held close to the chest by uh, those in power. So it's not just applying for a job and not getting it. It's not even knowing that the job exists. And so you don't even have a chance to apply. And you listen to people talking about their career success, and they'll never acknowledge any of this stuff. Most of the time, they don't. And it drives me nuts, you know, because they'll act like they did it all alone, and that anyone who isn't as successful as them, well, that's because they just didn't work as hard, okay? And so now, in response to the goblin voice, I'm now getting myself all worked up. And what was supposed to make me feel better has now made me fucking angry. And now I'm furious and I want to quit. (laughs) But then I go, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. You yourself had privileges that others didn't. You did not come from poverty. You had a college education. You are white. Your body functions and is a shape that society finds acceptable. Even if by Hollywood standards, that is debatable. (laughs) So... I got a head start over others as well. 
And it's important for me to acknowledge that. But then the whole thing starts again. And it's like, well, given all the luck you have had, how ungrateful could you be? How boring are you? No one wants to hear from you, Sarah. You don't have a struggle worth talking about. You don't have a story that's interesting enough, a perspective that is valuable. So just stop. Just stop, Sarah. Get out of here. You know, the cycle begins again. And I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of this roundabout in my head. I want to get off the ride. (laughs) Um... I don't want to debate the goblin voice anymore. Um, And that's what I've been learning in therapy for years now is that the debate isn't even valid. The the debate itself isn't valid. You know, that, that, you know, it it doesn't mean you have to go, you know, don't stop talking. Negative voice, stop talking. Um, You can acknowledge it and go, okay, that may be true, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, you have it a more... You, you don't give it so much importance. You don't give it such a stage in your mind. You don't go, okay, sit down. Let's talk about this. You go, okay, I hear you, but I'm moving on. Float away. Float away in the wind. Um, but again, like when I'm in a rut, it's harder to put those things into practice. And it's harder to not give this voice such credence. Um and I've just been wondering, is there larger changes I need to make? Because, um, you know, what I say I want is that I just want to make things and I want to be okay with the result no matter what it is. I just want to be creative. Um, and that's what I say I want and it is what I want. But also it's harder for me to admit that I also want recognition for my work. I do want that. I want respect. I want good press. I want attention. It's not a dirty word to say. It's not, you know, there's nothing shameful. Like somebody on Twitter, God, fucking Twitter. Uh, It's somebody on Twitter was like, you crave attention. And I was like, yeah, that's why I'm a comedian. (laughs) I do. I'm not going to lie that I want attention, that I want good press, that I want recognition for my work. Um. But I guess I'm more, the question is, on what scale, you know, is it good enough? What's good enough? You know, that unanswerable question. Um, Because I know people who are very, very successful. They're millionaires and they still don't feel good enough. So I'm trying to get to the root of that question. You know, how do I feel good enough? And I think it's, to me, it's not just... um, getting wanting attention, you know, it's what I said before, I want to have financial security. And until those needs are met, it's hard to separate what is, you know, an internal struggle for self acceptance versus like, I gotta fucking eat, you know. (laughs) Um, And I know I'm making it sound like I'm destitute or on the brink of it. I'm not, but I'm definitely not in a position where I feel secure for my future, for a retirement of any kind. And I don't mean a cushy retirement. I mean, just like my needs are being met. Like I have real fears um, about that. And it's not easy to admit that because I think I try to always project like, oh, I'm doing so good and I have such a great life and I do, but it's like, okay, but when I'm at what point am I going to stop getting jobs in this business? Is it in my 50s? 
And will I have enough savings to last? Like, I hope I live for many years after that. You know, will I may be able to, you know, do the things I want to do and have the life I want to have, which isn't much. I'm not asking for much. Anyway, these are big questions in my mind right now. And, you know, I don't want, I know I don't want massive fame. That feels like too much. Like, I don't need that. I don't need, I definitely don't need that. I'm, I'm 100% confident that I don't need massive fame. Um, but, you know, like, I'll give you an example of these, how this, all these questions swirl around in my head. So, for instance, for my book, one of my goals was very lofty. It was to get on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was, you know, one of those tip-top, wildest dream, what's the best thing that could, best possible outcome for this project. Um, And I knew it was very, very unrealistic, but it was something that I, you know, dreamed of. And did I want it because that particular accolade just means something to me personally? Have I always dreamed of that? No, not really. Um, Is it that I think I'm some kind of genius that's entitled to it? No. That if I don't get it, it means I'm a bad writer? No. That's not what it means for me. Does it mean my book wasn't good? No, no. I wanted it because I know what goes with it. Uh, Being on that list means more opportunity. It means financial success. It means the type of respect that opens doors for you. It means you don't have to beg and convince someone that you're worth their time. And that's how sometimes I feel like in my career right now, especially I feel, I don't feel that security. Um... So I just get caught up chasing these lofty things that I think are going to solve the problem, quote unquote, and they're so far out of reach and require so much luck that I'm being unrealistic. And now then I get stuck in all that cycle of disappointment and the goblin. And anyway, so a few months ago, I was working on a pitch for a TV show involving miniatures and dollhouses. And I'm not going to describe it in detail here because it's still there's still a just a faint ember of it burning that it might still be alive. Um, And I don't, so I don't want to give it away here, but I just couldn't get it off the ground. Okay. And it basically just halted with my reps, with my managers and agents. Like it never really got past them. Um, I don't think people understand that like, you know, sometimes your own agent and your manager can be gatekeepers in them in and of themselves into the industry because if they don't feel confident in your idea or in you, they're not going to go out there and help you sell it. Um, and they just didn't really do much with it. Um, they may be asked around and found out that nobody's interested in it, in it and they didn't really fully communicate that back to me. Like that's something I've noticed about agents and managers. They don't really want to give you bad news. They don't want to tell you no. They don't want to discourage you. But they don't understand that sometimes silence is very telling. And now I think, well, you know, just nobody wants this idea. Um, But I don't really know. It's unclear. And I guess I could keep hounding them, which I didn't do. Because honestly, it's demoralizing when you come up with something that you're so excited about and then it just sort of dies. It like fizzles out and nobody seems to give a fuck about it anymore. Um and it's hard to tell, like, how much of their apathy is also my, is similar to my apathy right now. Is the p- pandemic making literally everyone not want to work anymore? So, you know, except for a few people I know that have, like, very exciting new shit on their plate that is, like, changing their lives. <laughs> um, 
everyone I know is like fucking fed up with their job, whatever it is. And so I'm giving, I'm trying to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but you know, the apathy affects me too. And so it's, it's just hard to know where to go with all that. And, and, you know, again, the show idea is not dead, dead. And I do plan on like, when I have the capability of doing so to push back and go, come on guys, like, this is a good idea. Let's at least try to get it out there. You know, let's, I just want to just want an answer. Is it, is it a yes or a no from the industry? Um, let's not have it be dead on arrival. Um, because you know, how hard can it be? I've sold a TV show before. (laughs) It's easy. I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Hi everyone. For today's tutorial, I'll be showing you how to sell a TV show in just three simple steps. Step one, come up with an original idea or recycle an old idea that's been done 1 million times, whatever your personal preference. Step one, a tell your agent about the idea. Now, if you're curious how to get an agent, I recommend checking out my other YouTube video entitled How to Get a Hollywood Agent in 600 Easy Steps. So now that you've got your agent, it's time to tell them about your idea. Step 1B. Get feedback from your agent who will change the idea until it is good enough to pitch. To a network? No, not yet. You must first complete Step 1C. Finding a production company. Now you will pitch your idea to various production companies. If one of them likes your idea, you will work with them. Step 1D. Prepare the pitch with the production company. They will help you change the idea until it's good enough for pitching. This can take several months to several years because they'll also be insistent on finding a big name director or celebrity to attach. Sometimes big name directors and actors go on long vacations or are shooting a movie in New Zealand, so this can take time. While you're waiting, I recommend taking up a hobby like drinking. Step 1E. Now that a big name is attached, that person will help you change the idea again until it's what they want. Step 1F. It's finally time to pitch the idea to the networks. This process takes only one day. Have fun. Step 1G. If you're lucky, a network will tell you they want to buy your idea in the room. Other times, it takes weeks, if not months, to get an answer. Network executives also take long vacations. If you get a yes, now it's time to make your pilot, right? Wrong. A yes is different from an official offer. You must now proceed to step 1H, waiting for an official offer. This can take several months. Step 1I, negotiating the deal. Once you've gotten the official offer, now you must negotiate the terms. This takes minimum three months. Lawyers also like to go on vacation. You must also factor in the holidays in which Hollywood completely shuts down for five months. During negotiations, you will find out how much money you're going to potentially make on this project, even down to how much money you will make on the merchandise in the event that this idea you have goes all the way to be a smash hit and they're printing your face on coffee mugs. You have to work these details out now, which leads us to step 1J, spending all that money in your head. It's impossible during this step to not run the numbers and start imagining what you're going to do with all that money. In your head, you're buying a ranch in Montana that you can go to when the Malibu bungalow is getting deep cleaned. This is a mentally healthy activity and will in no way backfire down the line. Now, onto step 1K. The deal has been signed and now it's time to actually shoot your pilot. Not so fast. Most people must first go through a scripting and development phase, where the network changes your idea several times. This can take up to a year and requires a pilot pickup, meaning The network will decide whether or not the script is worth making into a pilot. If they say yes at this point, congratulations, you've made it to step two. 
Step two, shoot your pilot, have fun. Step two A, submit your finished pilot for consideration to the network. Now you must wait for them to decide if they will order the show to series. And that's just, you know, waiting for one or two dudes to get back from vacation so they can decide, right? Wrong. Step 2B, focus groups. Many networks don't trust their own instincts, so they'll send out your pilot to be market tested. They'll ask a group of 10 morons in Dallas to watch your life's work and give their opinion on it. If Bryce doesn't like it, your dream will sadly die. But if Bryce loves it, congratulations, you have made it to step three. Step three, making your TV show. This is where it gets really fun. You've gotten a green light and you're actually making your dreams come true. It's time to make your TV show. Step three A, but first, make sure you incorporate the feedback you received from Bryce. Step three B, complete production on your TV show. Now everyone will be able to see your idea come to life and you will become a household name. Whoa there, Nellie, not so fast. Before you can do that, you must proceed past step 3C, waiting for the network to decide to actually put your show on the air. Little insider secret. Sometimes networks will spend millions of dollars on a TV show and then just never air it. And you're like, why did that happen? Did somebody in the cast turn out to be a serial rapist? Not necessarily. It could just be that something like, we're going in a different direction, or hi, I'm the new network executive, and because I didn't personally greenlight your show, it makes me feel icky. Go away. I want my own ideas to be on TV. Mm. So fingers crossed you make it to step 3D, sitting on your couch in your own living room watching your own TV show with your own two eyeballs. Please keep in mind that at any point during this process that I just described, the entire thing could just dissolve with no warning or explanation. It's also important to note that the more famous you are or the more famous your dad is, the easier it is to get the, past these steps faster or even skip over them entirely. I'll talk about that in next week's video, how to be born into a famous family in seven easy steps. So there you have it, making a TV show in three easy steps. Please like and subscribe. Ah, uh, so. When I say I want to be on the New York Times bestseller list, that's what I'm talking about. I want just a little more grease for these wheels, you know? Uh, I want to make it a little bit easier just to get past step one, just to convince my own people that I'm worthy enough to even pitch my own ideas. <laughs> it's daunting when you're in at the bottom of that mountain once again, and especially when you've been at the, t the top of it. I have been to step 3D, sitting on a couch watching my own show. Um, what I'm learning is that these moments are rare. And I have been comparing myself sometimes to people who for some reason it's not that rare for them. For some reason they just get one thing after another and they don't really have a real rut <laughs> in their career. They just keep moving up and up and up and up. And I know that I'm oversimplifying. I know even the people I compare myself to, I know for a fact, you know, that they've had down times, that they are filled with self-doubt and struggle and, and nothing is easy. That's what I hope that that, that uh, little sketch I just did makes it clear. It's not easy, even for the, the famous people with the famous dads. They still kind of have to go through almost every one of those steps. 
It may not take as long. It may be a little bit easier for some of the steps, but there, you know, so I'm not saying that I shouldn't compare. I mean, this just goes back to the compare and despair is that, you know, I have to remember that I am sort of uh, painting the picture of other people I compare myself to. Oh, it's so easy for them. I mean, it's definitely not easy for them. But on paper, they have way more of that grease I'm talking about. They have more of the power, the clout. They have more money. They have, they have, you know, but again, I'm committing one of the fundamental sins. Covet. I am coveting my neighbor's wife. The wife being, you know, a hit series on Netflix. But <laughs> I don't mean to be such a downer here. Um... But I think the, maybe the way I need to look at it is like when those when I do make it to step 3D, I maybe only ha- will be able to have done it once in my whole life. Now, I've made it to other steps in that process. I've gotten close to 3D. And people very close to me have gone all the way to 3C and then their show didn't air. I've known this happen to several people. <laughs> they go all the way and then the show does not still get on TV. I mean... At least you get you do get paid for all a lot of these steps, so that's that's good. But but when you split up like but like mentioned when I when I mentioned like oh you're waiting a full year for one of the steps to take place, the money that you made for one of the steps it gets spread pretty thin. <laughs> so anyway, um, I guess I've just been really starting to question is if I even want to be in this rat race anymore. And if I leave it, what do I do? How do I support myself financially? How will I get my work seen by anyone? I mean, even just on a fundamental level, like wanting to quit Twitter because it's such a shit show there. It makes me mad. It makes me feel sick. It's it's bad for me. I know. It's like I'm like chain smoking. That's what it feels like. But if I delete my Twitter account, how will people know about the miniature comedy show I'm doing? That's another conversation. I, I have many thoughts on how you can be off Twitter, but still be on Twitter. But that's too much for today. Um, Which, by the way, if you came, I want to just really quick. um, If you did come to my show inside the ha ha hole inside my mini comedy club, thank you so much. Um, That was a real bright spot in the middle of all of this darkness in my head. You know, I put so much work into it. And it felt so wonderful to do. The comedians were so funny. I got the dolls made, you know, and as I mentioned, it was such a nightmare trying to get dolls that sort of vaguely even resembled Crystal Adams, Atsuko Atkatska, um, and Patton Oswalt. They were all so funny. Please check out um, Crystal and Atsuko if you don't know of them yet. I'm assuming you know who Patton is. I mentioned this before, but anyway, they were all really, really funny. It worked really well. Um, Scott... My husband did excellent camera work. It felt like you were really watching a stand-up special. He was like cutting to close-ups and stuff. It was so cool. I don't know if we'll do it again, but it's a possibility if the demand is there. You know, if I can get past step 1B (laughs) with it. Um, And a lot of people ask me if I will put up a video of it, which, you know, I wouldn't post the full video anyway because each comedian was like workshopping actual jokes from their act, but... Also, because when you watch the video back, it's so zoomy. 
Like the laughs feel so disjointed and weird because they're coming from Zoom. It sounds disembodied from what it was actually like when you were watching the show or being a part of it. So I might put together a few very short clips um, of some funny moments and I, I might have to like layer in a laugh track so it's not so jarring to watch. So that's, that's the type of thing I want to keep doing. Creative, joyful things, stuff that makes me happy. And the hope is that it makes others feel good too, but I can't control that part of it. I can only control myself. I can do my best to um, spread joy and love and, you know, with what I make. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is all like a midlife crisis. (laughs) I turned 43 a couple weeks ago. Um, I always thought that my midlife crisis already took place. I thought it took place at 31. Which, which was a year that a lot of shit happened in my life, and I sort of burnt things down to the ground. Uh, you can read about it in my book, Grand, available wherever books are sold. My mom died at 62, so that felt like the midpoint, okay? I, I can't, I know it's so dark to say, but I, I don't know if, if you've had a parent die um, earlier than you would have preferred, Um I, or or even older, I don't know if this is just a normal thing where you think in your head, I'm going to die the same time my parents died. And I guess if they died very, very young and tragically, there's a different experience there. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but my mom died at 62. I can't shake that feeling that I am also going to die at 62, which is terrible. And I'm really working hard to not have that happen. But it makes me feel like, oh, my God. Like right now at 43, like I only got like 20 years left. That's scary. So I can't help it. I mean, and I guess I should. People say you should be thinking about this stuff now anyway. But I've been thinking about my retirement nonstop. It's wild how quickly that shifted in my brain. Like I used to be thinking of so many other things when it came to the future. Now I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? I mean, because, okay, so let's say I live for 30 years longer than my mom did. Let's say I live into my 90s. That's a really long time to have to be able to support yourself without working if you're going to retire at 65. We have a real problem with, like, the, the, as people are living longer, we haven't figured out, we haven't changed the retirement age, (laughs) which I don't think we should. But that's a long time to have to, like, you know, survive. So I, I, I don't know. Time just feels like it's moving very fast. And then I start thinking about how big the universe is and how tiny I am and how many billions of years went by before I was even born and how many billions will go by after I'm dead. <laughs> and as horrifying as that is to think about sometimes, it's just so vast and infinite. And there's something freeing. You, you come out on the other side of it and you're free. I don't know. I, I do, I know you can tell, but I do keep listening to the soundtrack from Bo Burnham's um, new special, Inside. I really enjoyed it. And the more I listen to the songs, the more I love it. Uh, I relate to so much of it. Um, the feeling of like, should I even be trying to be seen right now? Should I even be trying to make comedy? Oh, shit. Should I be joking at a time like this? Like I had this, this song, the lyrics are just stuck in my head nonstop. Is what I'm doing even a valid endeavor? You know, <laughs> I have gone there with Bo deep inside. <laughs> Which, by the way, I read some of the critical, more critical reviews, and I think a few people took it way too literally. 
Um, they were like, there's no way he stayed in that room for a year by himself. This is dishonest. He's wealthy and he's being dishonest. You know, he doesn't live in a little room like that. And it's like, guys, it's art. And also, if you watch it closely, he's not being dishonest at all. He's actually creating um, a piece of art that he's not hiding from his truth. I don't think at all. I don't think he's trying to portray himself as something that he's not. Because in the very first line of the song, by the way, he tells you, um, if you'd have told me a year ago that I'd be locked inside of my home, ah, I would have told you a year ago. Interesting, now leave me alone. That's the first, I think that's the very first thing you hear in the, in the pandemic. And it says, what he's saying is, you know, hey, the pandemic started, but I was already isolated and inside when the pandemic started. And it's a signal that, you know, this isn't just a, a, a document of what happened in the pandemic. This is a, a reflection on his experience with mental illness. Okay. That's what we come to find out. Um, it's not meant to re represent what we all went through. <laughs> I mean, people want everything to be everything. I've talked about this. It's like, Take what you can from it. And if it doesn't speak to you, that's okay. You don't have to be angry at it. And I know that that's an oversimplification that some things erase people in a very harmful way. I don't think that's what Bo was doing here because I don't think he set out to represent the pandemic for everyone. And he tells you that right up front. Um. But towards the end, the songs, they get darker, they get more just, they're so good. Like, um, the one, um, That Funny Feeling, at first I thought it was, I dismissed it as one of my favorites. And then as I was listening to the soundtrack, I was like, wow, this is my dark little anthem. It's a very depressing song about the surreal contradictions of our current reality. You know, that sort of weird, he would call it derealization, <laughs> I guess, um, I did Google it. And you know what? I know this is very inside about inside, but <laughs> I did Google derealization. And that's one of his lyrics. Um, Google D in this song. And he hates what he found. I actually Googled it because I didn't know what it was because of this song. And I didn't hate it. I actually felt like, oh, that's what that is when I feel that. That funny feeling. It's the funny feeling you get when you're experiencing all these contradicting forces at once that the almost comical nature of our world right now, just nothing seems real. Okay, so there's this lyric, and again, I don't sing well, so. <clears throat> the whole world at your fingertips, the ocean at your door. The live-action Lion King, the Pepsi halftime show. 20,000 years of this, seven more to go. Carpool, karaoke, Steve Aoki, Logan Paul. A gift shop at the gun range, a mass shooting at the mall. There it is, oh, that funny feeling. That funny, I mean, and then it goes on and he's like, um, the part where it's just, I'm like, wow, I'm like in the car staring in the parking lot at CVS singing this at the top of my lungs like hey what do you say we were overdue 
but it'll be over soon. You wait. Da -da -da, da -da -da. It's just got this little like cheerful tune to it, but he's singing about the end of the world. Oh, it's so fucked up and depressing and dark, and I love it. It captures the funny feeling of all this stuff. Anyway, at the end of the special, I want to say this too. Um, his beard is shaven, and he's looking clean cut. Like, throughout the special, he's getting more and more disheveled, and his beard is getting longer. And then suddenly, he's, like, clean cut. And he's like, okay... He says something like, ending, final song, take one. And then it goes to a second take. And now his beard is long again. And it's like, oh, it's, it's a joke. But it's also a little wink to the audience. Like, hey, not everything I did in this special is literal. I am an artist and I edited it. And I wrote a story and about an emotional experience. And thank you for coming along for the ride. <laughs> you know? I love art like that. It's also why I loved Nanette, um, Hannah Gatsby's solo show. I saw it live in Edinburgh. And then, of course, later, I watched it again when it came to America by way of Netflix, you know, to ruin comedy. Um, <laughs> people's biggest complaint at the time with Nanette was that it wasn't funny. That's not comedy. Well, first of all, it was funny. Lots of laughs were had, especially up front. She is a funny comedian. But if you pay attention, Hannah tells you in the special, in the performance, that she's quitting comedy. She lays out her, like, uh, you know, here's what I'm going to do. And then during the show itself, at some point, she quits comedy. She stops telling jokes and she starts getting real. She doesn't lie to us. She didn't trick you. It's beautiful. Why are people so afraid of experiencing art that's different than what they're used to? <laughs> anyway... Whatever. I have so many thoughts about Annette. First off, Dave Chappelle. Check out most of his specials over the past few years. He will take a full 30 minutes to tell you a history lesson about Emmett Till with zero laughs. <laughs> and everyone's like, it's the fun. He's the funniest man alive. You know, it's like because you trust Dave. You trust that he's going somewhere, that eventually he's going to break the tension. He's going to make you laugh. But we didn't know who Hannah Gatsby was. And of course, she didn't fit the mold of what, you know, Americans, American comedians, for the most part, thought should a comedian should look like and be like. And that upset them greatly, which is a whole separate conference. I have a lot of things of like, hey, it's a separate episode. Anyway, I digress. I know I'm going on way too long. Um, I might even have to not do the segment I was going to do. We'll see how this edits together. But at the beginning, I talked about how doing my gardening keeps me from going too deep into this darkness, too deep inside, okay? And eventually, I come out of it, I feel better, thank God. And, you know, Bo talks about that in, in Inside. He says, this will, I'm waiting for this feeling to pass, you know, this depression I'm in. And I wouldn't say what I'm going through as like clinical, really severe depression, but I would say it's, I go through down modes. Well... Last night, I started to feel better after I watched a documentary called Fantastic Fungi. Please watch this. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I love fungi. Basically, this documentary sums up everything I read in the book I told you about, Entangled Life. Um, fungi has the power to save us all. I'm not joking. I was sitting there watching this documentary about mold with tears in my eyes. <laughs> 
tears running down my cheeks because it was so beautiful. Just feeling completely at peace with all of it. Sure, humanity is on a path to self-destruction, but fungi will outlive us all. It somehow made me feel so much better. They process life and death. They, they are, through death, they create life. Through decay, they are life. I mean, it's just incredible. I really do want you to go and watch this documentary because I am going to, in a future episode, in the near future, go very deep on fungi. Um, I have to. I love talking about mushrooms and fungi, um, mold. <laughs> but the point here is that I felt that way. I came out of a sort of rut, a, a mood rut, watching a show about mushrooms. So imagine what mushrooms could do if I took them medicinally. Hmm? So let's hurry it up on the clinical trials, okay, FDA? They are getting close to approving um, psychedelic uh, treatment for uh, depression, PTSD. I've talked about this before. They're getting close. I think in our lifetime, we will be able to have access. I mean, depending on where you live, like in California, it, my friend grows magic mushrooms, like tons, pounds and pounds of them. I could get them if I wanted. I just don't really want to approach it from a recreational standpoint. I do want to approach it from a therapeutic standpoint. And I know you can pay people to like take you on your little trip. I don't know. I just think I'm... I want to make sure I'm not doing this in a way that's just like, yeah, man, <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to touch the universe, okay? I want to take it seriously. And maybe that's the wrong mindset. See, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's going to probably become the whole next hour of my stand-up is me trying mushrooms for the first time. We've gone in so many different directions. Um if we have time, I'm going to check when I edit this all together. If we have time, we're going to go straight into right now another segment of Hobby Watch. Well, we didn't have time um, for Hobby Watch. I promise I will put it in the next episode. Um, thank you so much for listening. I, again, thanks for your patience. I think we're all kind of in the same mode right now of having a conflicted relationship with work. Um. But I thank you for listening. Bye.